how could you judge the purity? Because I know in one episode they use like some big machine and it gives them a like a percentile of purity. Yeah, I'm not sure the that name machine of the right piece here. Of equipment. Welcome to The Good, The Bad, and The Science, the show that breaks down the science of television and movies with a comedian and a scientist. Today, we're discussing Breaking Bad. I hadn't planned on doing that, but that theme song is just so, so good. Anyway, I'll ask about deadly poisons and how to make meth, and of course, Heisenberg. Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Ethan Edinburgh, and I've got two fascinating guests joining me today. I'm very excited to talk to them. My first guest is a stand-up comedian and actor you've seen on Comedy Central and just last month on Late Night with Jimmy Fallon. Welcome to the show, Matthew Broussard. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ethan. I'm a big fan of yours. I'm excited to speak to you for the first time about what might be my favorite show of all time. Where does it rank for you? How do you feel about Breaking Bad? I'd say top 10. Dramatic series, yeah, and and, and I, I I think it's um its reputation is earned. It's definitely up there for good reason. I don't dispute that. I don't have any problems with the show. Uh, I have nothing to complain about. It's a, a pessimistic way of of complimenting it. And uh, yeah, my personal attachment is that my father was a PhD chemist who oh. uh, kind of uh, turned down a life in academia to work as a research or as a, a industrial chemist. Wow. So I I see a lot of my father in uh, Heisenberg. He worked for a chemical company that probably did damage to the environment and the world uh, in a less direct way than Walter. Well, good to know that your father was also an educated villain in his own right. That's awesome. Thank you for just calling him out right away on the podcast. Um, I also wanted to mention that I saw that you make incredibly cute sculptures. Is that correct? Yeah, Cockblock Argoyles on Instagram. That's my side hobby. That's right. I saw that. How'd you get into that? I was, I'm was. i just curious about it. Started when I was five. My parents just bought me clay. And my, wow. my neighbor had got every toy he wanted. And my parents didn't like indulging that. So what toys he got that they didn't get me, I tried to sculpt for myself. And that's kind of what started me on that path. Man, very cool. Yeah, I love those. And uh, And listen, we're talking about Breaking Bad, so I have to get it out of the way. You ever done meth? No. Adderall's the hardest upper I've done. Maybe Molly. Okay. And uh, your favorite drug? Is that Molly? Acid. Acid? Okay. That makes sense. See, you're already way more experienced than I am. So this is good to have you on the show uh, to, to balance me out, my uh, my geekdom over here. Um, our, our second guest is also going to be helping us. I'm super excited to talk to him. He's a chemistry teacher who creates videos so that schmucks like me can learn about chemistry on TikTok. So welcome to the show, Phil Cook. Thanks so much for having me here, Ethan. I'm excited. <laughs> no, thrilled to have you. I, uh, I love seeing your uh, experiments online. And, uh, and I wanted to ask about your take on Breaking Bad as a chemistry teacher. Like, did you feel good that there's this hit show that's talking about chemistry? Or were you kind of disturbed by, I don't know, inaccuracies and afraid that kids would just start cooking meth? I'm not really worried about kids cooking meth. And I think they actually do a pretty good job of taking the science and, and accurately representing it with some artistic liberty. Uh, and it also gives every single person that watches it a question to ask their chemistry teacher. 
because every one of my kids asks me, do you cook meth? <laughs> Very first thing they say when they, when they meet me. And, I and say you no. have to. Yeah, you have to. Yeah, let them down no. easy. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't. <laughs> yes. I disappoint um, them from the start. Nice. Yeah, right away. That's awesome. And uh, so I assume you also enjoyed the show. You've seen. I assume you yes. watched all episodes of it this morning to prepare. I did not, but I've seen every single episode. By far my favorite show, purely for the the science nerd part of me that yeah. just loves the storyline that, that's kind of woven into those episodes. Yeah, yeah. The show is awesome. I'm totally with you. I've I've seen it multiple times like a weirdo. Um, I also watched it live, which was like super exciting to like wait week to week to see an episode. I definitely miss uh, that aspect of television that mostly doesn't exist anymore. Um, but uh, I have so many questions for you, Phil. So we're going to try to get to them. I'm sure Matthew has as well. Uh, the first one is that meth does not come out blue. Is that correct? Even when it's super, super yeah. pure, this was something they made up for the show. Is that right? Yes. It's a distinguishing characteristic between the two methods that Walt uses over the course of the show. The first one involves uh, using pseudoephedrine and kind of phosphorus, red phosphorus from like match heads. And the second is kind of related. If you've seen the show, you know, when they start to steal methylamine from the train from the train cars, that's the, the second, the newer method that they tend to employ. Both of those produce fundamentally the same methamphetamine. Pretty much the same. And you can't really judge the purity of organic crystals like that by their color. So even if it was blue, that wouldn't tell you that's necessarily pure. How how could you judge the purity? Because I know in one episode they use like some big machine and it gives them a like a percentile of purity. Yeah, I'm not sure the yeah, name machine of the right here. equipment. <laughs> yeah, that's that's actually what they use in the show, right? They have people take they have people taste it and then they'll got a mass they know spectrometer in my sinus cavity. <laughs> yeah. Mass spectrometry would work. Or you can use your olfactory. <laughs> Perfect. Um, okay, so yeah, doesn't matter how pure it is; it's coming out clear, uh, from what I understand. Is that right? Yeah, white to kind of grayish white. It's just kind of like if you imagine like quartz sand, for example. You can have rose quartz; it's pinkish. You can have uh, a white quartz, and it's really minute impurities. It doesn't really tell you the overall quality of the quartz just from the color that you see. Because small small impurities lead to very dramatic color differences. And you were saying the there's two different methods in order to make it and that it ultimately creates the same result. Is there a method that you would prefer? If you have to start making meth tomorrow, what would you do? I wouldn't start making meth tomorrow. Uh, I What's make, your special blend of herbs and spices? Tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, come on. Yeah, uh, Theoretically, you have to. Uh, honestly, to get a little more, uh, I guess, political about it, I would make it so that Walt was never in the situation where he had to make that decision, right? Because if you think about it, it's purely to pay his health care bills, which I imagine people across the pond who watch this show were like, why is he resorting to making meth? Yeah, and just go to the doctor for free. What are you talking exactly about? Exactly right. He, yeah. he doesn't have that option. So. Okay, very cool. Well, and while, you know, while we're at it, why not also raise teacher salaries, right? So that even if it does cost some money, he has it. Yeah, absolutely. I don't, maybe that's just me. I don't know. <laughs> no, I don't think it's just you. Oh, okay. Good to know. Can I ask uh, a film question? And it's something I've thought a lot about. I've never right. asked anyone. 
the first episode, they go over left hand, right hand molecules. I forget the name for a molecule. It's exactly this. What's yeah. that? Chirality. Chirality. So they talk yeah, about chirality, chirality of a some, yeah. and, the, and you could probably name the example of a regular uh, molecule whose, I, I guess, chiral form would be extremely toxic or damaging to to humans, and or or just the flip the mirror image would not. There's there's not any that I can name off the top of my head where chirality plays that functional of a role. Uh, there was, oh God, maybe you guys maybe you guys remember this. There was a medication that was given to pregnant women in the 70s that caused some pretty severe birth defects. And they thought that it was due to chirality. Thalidomide. Yeah, that's it. Exactly right. Thalidomide. It's from, uh, we didn't start the fire. Yeah. So the idea, the thinking was that it was only one of the uh, enantiomers, kind of these two molecules, right, that are not mirror image, that are mirror images of another, but not superimposable. And they thought one of them was causing all of these defects. And it turns out that they both that they both did. They both caused those problems because you couldn't manufacture thalidomide without getting a 50-50 mixture of both. Uh, hmm. Anyway, that's about all. That's about my extent of knowledge recently with chirality. They're called antimers? Is that the name of them as well? Uh, Enantiomers. Okay, I believe they gave his lesson to his high school class was on that. Ethan, have you watched the first episode recently? Uh, I haven't watched it recently, but I'll tell you, I know it. Yeah. Okay. So that's something he discusses. And I always mm-hmm. wondered what the symbolism was of that exact lesson. Because um, I found that a beautiful way of using chemistry to maybe maybe represent something else. I figured it was, you could be a good person or a bad person. Very slight differences could lead to a very a yes. good or bad life. Th- that's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. That's a very I mean, philosophical take. I can see that happening with yeah. with yeah. I mean, I assume you do this all the time, Phil, in your classrooms, where it's like you're talking about chemistry, but really you're not. You're talking about life choices for these students. <laughs> you're trying to get through I, to them. I try and convey those little life lessons in subtle components of molecular structure. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Do you have a favorite element? I would say iodine is one of my favorites. Just it's a pretty element. It's <laughs> It's it sublimes pretty easily. It's a purple it's a purple crystal, and yeah, it, you can do some very interesting things with it. It, it actually it is it can be used in um, in methamphetamine manufacturing instead of red phosphorus. So you can use it as Whoa. a reducing agent. So taking that pseudoephedrine, you need something to reduce it to make the methamphetamine. In the in the show, Walt um, uses red phosphorus in that very first episode as a reducing agent. Uh, you could also use iodine. The uh, the red phosphorus also he uses to poison uh, two gangsters that are threatening him. Um, yeah. Does that uh, does that check out? So it it kind this is kind of a kind of situation because okay. phosphorus will react with with hot water to make something called phosphine, and phosphine is really really toxic. You don't need much in the air at all, and it's an it's a very strong nerve agent, causes respiratory issues, causes severe skin and, and subcutaneous kind of and cutaneous irritation. Hmm. Uh, the problem is it's the white phosphorus form that's the most reactive. And if you kind of watch the episode, he tosses it into the boiling water and then like immediately everyone is overcome by these fumes of phosphine. There's a little bit of artistic liberty there that I think that was taken, which is fine because it will react, phosphorus will react to make phosphine. 
but the white white phosphorus form reacts most rapidly. The red phosphorus form, you'd have to let it cook for a while to really build up those toxic levels. And the other thing that happens with phosphine gases, there's a side reaction where you create diphosphine. And diphosphine and phosphine, when they get in the air in a concentrated enough amount, uh, they become pyrophoric, which means as soon as they come in contact with oxygen in the air, they burst into flame. Whoa. So they kind of auto-ignite. So you can imagine this situation where he's got this kind of, I think it's like a frying pan with some water that he pours into it, and then he throws in the red phosphorus from match heads. Uh, in reality, it would burst into flame if that reaction was happening at a fast enough rate because oh. of the byproducts that you would make as well, in addition to the phosphine gas. Damn. Okay, so yeah, I guess they got it right that it is really dangerous, but just not in the exact way yeah. that it's portrayed. Yeah, I mean, there's and there's lots of ways you could actually make phosphine gas as well with the stuff that he would have in the, in his uh, in the RV. How much of a perfectionist was Walter White? You're watching him to go through these processes. Uh, what kind of margins is he? What kind of improvements is he actually making with the incredible links to? Uh, keep it very, you know, the fly episode. Is, is he being overreactive or do those all those little things really make a difference? All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. The break is over. Here we go back to the show about science. I don't honestly know if, if every single tweak that he makes throughout the course of the show makes that much of a difference. I think we see the progression over the seasons where he measures the purity and he's at like 98%. And then later on, he gets to like 99 or so. A lot of that might have to do with the scale of the equipment that he's using and the quality of the equipment that he's using. His process also gets refined once he starts to, once he switches away from the pseudoephedrine, which I think he only uses in the first, in his first cook, because then Jesse, they just have trouble finding the pseudoephedrine that they need and the quantities that they need to be able to make the, the methamphetamine that they're trying to manufacture. So they switch routes because it's easier to obtain the raw materials. Mm -hmm. But as far as the end product, you're gonna. I, I think that his the route he takes may have had a role to play in that. Uh, but I think it also you see a, a scaling up of the quality of his equipment as the seasons go on too. Is that like a? Because I, I agree with you, Matthew. It seems like a like a characteristic of yeah yeah like a characteristic of. The, this kind of science like did you were you taught in school like is there a an aspect of chemistry that's all about just you know cleanliness and the experiment won't be accurate unless all of these protocols are followed etc i think that comes from his research background because you know re he has done some research work previously and in research work you have to be meticulous you have to use precise amounts whereas jesse's cooking is kind of like what you might hear about in the news in, in smaller rural communities where people are making meth in a two liter bottle in a backpack mm -hmm. where they're getting very low crude yields of methamphetamine. You know, he's focused on his research becomes making the purest, highest quality product that he can. So he uses his research to do that, his research background to do that. There, uh, there was also at the beginning this like uh, pedestal they were kind of putting themselves on as far as like we're we're benefiting the customer because they're getting a better product. Uh, how much of that do you think uh, was legit? That I I don't know. I think you would have to kind of go to the customers and ask like, is it is it worth the 
is it worth the price, the additional price? Because they were charging more too, weren't they? <laughs> yeah, but I mean... On this episode, you should have gotten a meth head as your expert. <laughs> <laughs> Harder to find, weirdly. Um, no, I mean, I, I just, I thought the implication was like, we're creating a healthier, purer form of meth. And so, sure, they're going to get these effects and become addicted and it's bad for them, but it's not as bad as these people that are, like you said, making in a two liter bottle in a backpack. I think they've got an argument to make that case. Absolutely. Okay. Because a okay. lot of the materials you use to process it are highly alkaline, result in some pretty toxic sludge. And if you're not able to separate that from your product, then that's never a good solution in any situation. I, w I always wondered if the purity would make it more dangerous because it's stronger. Yeah. Dosing themselves against a weaker batch. So there might be an easier chance of overdosing. I think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it absolutely makes a lot of sense. Because if you're used to a particular drug with a particular effect and using a certain amount, and then you just switch brands, and all of a sudden things are quite different, the potency is is enhanced. Yeah, there's there's a greater risk there. Absolutely. You got to weigh the pros and the cons here of your meth purity, uh, <laughs> which I'm sure all these listeners are really concerned about. You're also saying, Phil, that there's other things in meth that are... Uh, harmful to your health there's there's toxins and you said sludge uh are those the things in meth that kill you or are those things that just give you gum disease and cancer over time yeah it's the side effects right i think the side effects and the addiction that comes about and the, the side effects in tandem with those uh, those those kind of uh, materials are also going to be present in there in that in that particular methamphetamine product that you might be making the choice to to consume if the side effects are you never want to eat you don't want to do anything other than consistently get high then your physical health's going to go down the tubes and it, i guess it doesn't really matter if there's additional toxic sludge in that particular batch that you might be consuming uh, i would just worry more about if there was mercury contamination because uh, i know that ah. In the show, you see him use aluminum quite a bit, but uh, from what I had read about the process, there's also mercury that could be involved in um, in the reducing phase of the of the second process that Walt tends to use, and mm. also involving possible thorium salts, so thorium oxide as a component, and thorium is not something that you would want to ingest. But Walt's pretty careful about separating out everything, and as long as you separate it and dispose of the byproducts, it seems like what you're saying also is that it's very dangerous to cook meth, that it's not just the yes. intaking of meth, it's not just the side effects, et cetera, the toxic sludge, but that you need to be extraordinarily educated and careful if you're the one creating it, right? Like a lot could go wrong, it sounds like, in this process. You're dealing with yes. dangerous chemicals. Yes, there's a reason why it's not uncommon to read about backpack meth labs exploding. Because wow. there are processes that produce gases, and in many cases, for one, for example, uh, just in, in introducing aluminum in the presence of a strong basic solution like sodium hydroxide, something that has a high pH, will cause the formation of hydrogen gas. Hydrogen gas is explosive, and the reaction between aluminum and sodium hydroxide releases a lot of heat. So you're releasing a lot of heat at the same time as you're generating a gas that's quite explosive. Yeah, is it? I, I've I've heard what I know about meth is that one of the it's fortunately has not caught on in major cities because you need a lot of space 
to make it. And it also smells really bad. So one of the only places they can make it is out in sheds in the desert without drawing attention. Yeah, the, the process in particular that, that Walt uses, that second process, has, after you kind of reduce it, you go through this amination. So amination adds uh, nitrogen groups, nitrogen groups into the, um, oh, what is it? It's like a phenyl acetate acid that he starts with, and he reacts it then with methylamine. The methylamine kind of donates the amine group, the nitrogen group, to it. And one of the byproducts of that is going to be some ammonia gas that's given off. Now, ammonia... If you live in the sticks like me, ammonia, you see ammonia in tanks going down into the fields because we use it as fertilizer. But if one of those tanks ever has a leak, you have to get away from it. You can't breathe in ammonia. It would, it kind of sears your lungs shut. It's a bad wow. situation. Uh, so with that whole process, you produce all kinds of nasty gases. Um, okay. They use hydrofluoric acid a bunch in the show, uh, mainly to melt down bodies dead bodies uh at one point they even put it into a bathtub and it like melts down the bathtub and the floor beneath it and so i wanted to just ask about hydrofluoric acid in general and if it's accurately portrayed in the show again there's some artistic liberty taken with that particular acid it, hydrofluoric acid is a chemist would would classify it as a weak acid but that doesn't mean it's not reactive it's extremely reactive the calling it a weak acid just talks to how much it breaks apart in water or how much it dissociates in solution. So it's an acid you would never want to come in contact with. It does an excellent job of attacking your bones because it reacts with calcium. Fluoride ions love calcium. And so it, it will interact with, your, uh, with the calcium in your bones rapidly. And I can tell you a uh, a quick little story related with working with hydrofluoric acid and then talk about the artistic liberty that was taken. Please so do. we use hydrofluoric acid in all kinds of industrial processes. A lot of it is used for cleaning uh, silicon wafers. So what we use to make uh, semiconductors that are used in iPhones or, or computers, whatever, whatever kind of requires a heart of a transistor, we use it. We use silicon for that. The silicon has to be meticulously clean before we can make those transistors though. So we use hydrofluoric acid because it can dissolve the silicon. It can dissolve glass and it actually dissolves most of pretty much anything else. If you get exposed to it, and I was working in a research lab where we would clean wafers of silicon by dipping them in hydrofluoric acid, just a small kind of coin quarter-sized exposure onto your skin, you had less than 30 minutes to take uh, the antidote and we kept a bottle of it a bottle of the antidote, they're just calcium gluconate tablets because you kind of flood your system. If you get exposed, you flood your system with calcium and hopefully that hydrofluoric acid that's leaching into your skin because it doesn't burn your skin like a normal acid would burn your skin. You only start to feel the effects once it's gone subcutaneous and started to go into your bloodstream and attack your, your bones directly. Oh my God. So I've never talked to anyone who's actually had a burn but of course, you just need to Google it to find out what those types of burns look like. They're gruesome and they look immensely painful. So Walt uses this acid to dissolve an entire body. Now, here's where it would work well. It would work well for the bones of that particular body. Uh, it wouldn't necessarily dissolve it as quick as some other mineral acids. And I think you could make an argument for him using nitric acid instead. Nitric acid will do a wicked quick job of dissolving organic material. 
like very, very fast. Uh, it'll also produce some nasty gases in the process. Nitrogen dioxide, for example, it's like a component of smog. Um, gives you that brownish haze in big urban areas that have a lot of automobiles. Um, but that would work out quite well. It would still attack the bathtub. It's a cast iron bathtub. Both of those acids that I mentioned, hydrofluoric acid being the one in the show, would attack that and possibly eat through and then weaken the substructure underneath. I don't know if it would eat through wood. It might weaken the wood. I'm not sure it would completely dissolve wood. I'm just not mm -hmm. familiar with hydrofluoric acid's action on cellulose. Um, but the drywall, you just get drywall wet and it starts to fall apart. So, so you're telling me that, first of all, it doesn't burn your skin. It just like seeps through the pores trying to get into your body. Right, and, it gets absorbed pretty quickly. And that if it is absorbing, that you take a pill, which has more calcium in it, hoping for the best? Well, the idea is you take all of the pills in the bottle. They're just a bunch of chewable what? tablets. They're, <laughs> it looks like a prescription bottle. The one that we had where I was doing this research, it, was, it just said calcium gluconate, and it was a hydrofluoric acid antidote. You would take all of them, you would chew them, and then you would go to the hospital. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. The break is over. Here we go. Back to the show about science. Oh, my God. Because the idea God. is you want to try and neutralize as much of that acid as you can before it starts to attack your bones. I've never heard of any antidote where you have to take all the pills. It seems like that's an exorbitant amount. It's like you're overdosing. I don't know. I can think of one thing that's equivalent to that, and it's bear mace. <laughs> There's no okay. difference between bear mace and regular mace, except with bear mace, if you run into a bear, finish spraying the whole can. <laughs> bear mace is just a larger container, and the directions just say spray until there's nothing left. Yeah. One time use, single serving. <laughs> single serving. Either you made it or you didn't. Um, okay, so I also wanted to ask about mercury fulminate. Um because they use it, I believe, in that scene where he, like, uh, blows up this, like, whole story of a building uh, early on. I think it's in the first season. I don't remember the exact episode, but I think it's where he's going to deliver some methamphetamines to Tuco, right? Tuco Salamanca? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and um, so from what I remember about that episode, some thing, uh, first about mercury fulminate. Mercury fulminate is a shock-sensitive explosive. You might have, you probably have come in contact with something similar, something called silver fulminate. Silver fulminate is in these little, when if you have little kids or if you like them yourself, the little snap pops around the 4th of July that you can buy that you throw on the sidewalk and they kind of make a pop. That's basically grains of silica sand coated with silver fulminate. Silver fulminate hmm. is just like mercury fulminate in terms of its sensitivity to shock and it blows up just a tiny, tiny amount. Uh, another place where you might have seen these in uh, holiday, kind of like Christmas crackers, the ones you pull apart and they make a snap, those contain silver fulminate. So fulminates are typically a class of chemical compounds that are extremely sensitive to shock, vibration, light, heat, anything sets them off. And when they, when they detonate, they tend to produce a lot of gases, which is a characteristic of most explosives. Here's the problem with that particular scene. From what I remember, I haven't watched this one recently. Walt takes a single large crystal of mercury fulminate, and I think he's trying to pass it off as like uh, methamphetamine to Tuco. And to have a crystal that you could even hold in your hand like this, 
there's no way he's getting it out of his pocket without it detonating. But anyway, let's assume that he did, right? Let's assume Uh that he did. He tosses a single crystal to the ground. It wouldn't blow a hole in the floor like like the show portrays or taking quite a bit of artistic liberty with that. But the other thing is he's still got some mercury fulminate on him. And the, the real error here is not the liberty in blowing a hole in the ground. Yeah, you could do that if you had enough. But as soon as he dropped that crystal on the ground, all of the fulminate that he had on him would detonate from the shockwave. The shockwave would set it all off immediately. <laughs> it's not something you carry in your pocket. You make it and then and then you would like you would detonate it as soon as you made it because it's too unstable to carry around. Is that the purpose of that? Do they use that for explosives? I'm just trying to think what is the point of it normally? I don't think that they actually use most fulminates for any real purpose because they're too shock sensitive. Whoa. Mercury fulminate might be used as um, like a primary, a secondary explosive to set off a primary explosive. So kind of that initial shock to set off a more stable explosive. So if you kind of think about movies like Die Hard where they have C4 and then they stick a detonator in there, the detonator typically will have a much more sensitive explosive in there that will provide the shockwave that sets off the more stable explosive. Wow. I think we might use mercury fulminate for that, but honestly, I don't, I don't think there's many. Mercury fulminates this weird black sheep outsider. It's too crazy. It's too rebellious <laughs> to be used at, even for explosives. It's too crazy. Yeah. All the fulminates in general, most fulminates are the same. Wow. You, you wouldn't make them ever. Okay. There's, Good to there's know. no, there's no reason. Um, okay, I want to ask about these poisons. There's various uses. There's various scenes where they use ricin and they use uh, whatever spoiler, I guess, if you haven't seen Breaking Bad, Lily of the Valley. Mm-hmm. So could you tell me about if those were used accurately and if they're as dangerous as they're portrayed on the show? I mean, I think he, he uses like cherry pits or something to, to isolate the ricin or was it apricot pits? Do you guys remember? Know. No, cherry sounds more familiar. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, there's 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 poisons in in lots of like fruit seeds, for whatever reason. I mean, apple seeds have um, arsenic in them that you could what that technically I guess could be isolated from them. Uh, yeah, I mean, you learn these things teaching high schoolers over decades and decades because they ask you, oh, well, eating cap- apple seeds kill you. I heard they have arsenic in them. Is that true? Yes, mm. that's true. There's arsenic in apple seeds. Well, why does, when you eat an apple, a whole apple core and all, why doesn't it kill you? Well, first of all, your body can't break down the exterior of the seed, so you can't actually get to the stuff that's bad. And the amount of apple seeds you'd have to eat would be a huge basketful of just mm-hmm. seeds to be able to get a lethal dose because of the amount of arsenic that's in there. Now, of course, that doesn't preclude someone like Walter White from being able to take the cherry pits, process them in his lab, and extract only those most dangerous parts. Wow. And I don't remember the Lily of the Valley. Was that used in when he was in Mexico? You Lily of the Valley was used towards the end, I believe, to kind of fake kill uh, the kid that uh, that Jesse was, you know, had a connection with. And so it seemed like he had some deadly poison and that he was going to die. And then it turned out he was okay. The doctors couldn't figure out what it was. Well, gentlemen, we're running short on time. I have a few other things I wanted to throw at you, Phil, if that's cool. Fire away. Okay. There's an awesome sequence where they use huge magnets to destroy evidence. Does that make sense? Can we wipe 
electronics with magnets should it be a magnet that big was it too small how how did you how did, what was your take on this whole magnet adventure i'm not a magnet expert let me give that caveat first of all okay i do know that as long as the evidence is stored on sort of some sort of magnetic storage device like a platter on a hard drive then yes you can disrupt it for the Whoa. same reason why the magnetic stripe on your credit cards has to be kept away from sources of electromagnetic radiation right you can't keep that swipe if you want that information coded on that little stripe on the back of your credit card you can't put it near magnets as well because it could scramble the information that's stored there because it's stored on matter that's organized a certain way and it's magnetically coded and so if you put in in contact or in close proximity with a very strong electric electromagnetic field you can scramble that information Hence why I have to go back and get a new hotel room key. Most of my visits to La Quinta. <laughs> because you're playing with magnets in your room with the key? Oh, because of your phone. Your phone will uh, deactivate a hotel key very frequently. Yeah, like the newer phones with the mag with the mag coil on the back that does the charging. Is that what causes it? Or Oh, right. Uh, anytime. Anytime my phone just... I let my phone just lay my key card lay flat on my phone it deactivates i assume it's the same process crazy magnets used to be so fun when i was growing up and now all of a sudden i'm feeling like magnets are so they're gonna delete all the stuff that i've been working on i'm not sure it's an issue with solid state storage though i don't think if you have like a solid state drive it's 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 an issue yeah Yeah, the show was what 2009 so i'd imagine solid state storage was not the predominant storage method Mm-hmm. So yes, I think that would I think that would work. As far as the the magnitude of the strength, how close his field is actually able to penetrate, there's probably some artistic some liberty taken there, because the strength of a magnetic field drops off exponentially with distance. Mm. So one over R squared, it, baby. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Let's go. Um, <laughs> Okay, awesome. And then uh, finally, what about Heisenberg? Do you, do, I mean, the actual guy, like, was he uh, a hero? Did he have uh, a villainous streak? Why do you think he chose the name Heisenberg? That's a good question. Kind of an Thank homage, you. an homage to his, to his scientific roots, somebody mm-hmm. who was dedicated to learning more, describing the unknown. I mean, Heisenberg is famous for the uncertainty principle. So the principle in essence is if you want to know information, he was speaking specifically about electrons, those little particles that circle around the nucleus of an atom. He said, you can know where an electron was, uh, but not where it is because measuring where it is changes its location. So it's worded a little differently. You can know the, Oh, I forget the exact. You can't know momentum and position simultaneously. Yeah. There you go. You can't know momentum and position simultaneously. Just the fact of measuring location changes it. Uh, maybe uh, maybe it's because uh, Walter White defied expe- uh, defied observation. Or when you weren't looking, he was doing something you couldn't explain. Yes. Maybe that's why he liked Heisenberg. I love that. That's a great explanation Who, for it. Who's your favorite? Who's your favorite chemist? I like Marie Curie. I think that yeah. she would, the work that she did was groundbreaking and of course it took her life yeah but 
talk about somebody who was not willing, who was unwilling to like give any any credence to the fact that a woman couldn't be a scientist. I think was fantastic at the time. I I think that the work that she did, she took pitch blend, which is kind of like this tarry substance, and isolated radium from it. Just the sheer workhorse mentality that she had to take all of this raw material, isolate radium, and then do experiments on it. And the history of that is actually, for me, it's super nerdy. It's super nerdy because we had we had a number of years where, because of her work showing that radium was this magical material that kind of glowed in the dark, we didn't have materials that kind of glowed in the dark at the time. So we put them on what we put radium on watch dials. Uh, there are some really unforeseen consequences related to that as well with the women who painted the radium paint onto the watch dials because they would lick the tips of their of the paintbrush. Oh my god. To keep it pointy, to point that to paint that fine little Whoa. strip on the paintbrush and they got they all died of like mouth cancer and esophagus cancer as a result of their radium exposure. Jesus. But even beyond that, some stuff I didn't know until I really started looking into her and the work that she did. There was industries that erupted and then quickly failed on miracle cures related to radium where oh drink this radium beverage it's, it's got you know it's got glow-in-the-dark power those kinds of things just a snake oil that popped up immediately when she was making discoveries on things that we didn't really know much about radioactivity mm -hmm. um, and just how people took that and tried to monetize it is interesting yeah, well, and all that these superheroes spooky. that get to get their powers from radiation, yeah. people are probably like, oh, this is this is going to be great. I believe she also was the first to win a Nobel in both physics and chemistry. She wasn't just yes. like one of the, the first women, one of the first women. She also that's just so impressive. And then the fun things to tell your to tell people that you uh, that you have, I guess, the time to share this with is that her lab notes that she took can't be handled because they're still radioactive to this day and they're going to be unhandleable for hundreds of thousands of years Oh my! because of God. the amount of radium that is just contaminating her entire lab space and her lab notebook as a result. Whoa. You can handle them for a short period of time, but you have to wear protective gloves because you don't want any of that material. Wow. That's intense. That's like Voldemort's diary was how it <laughs> killed people in the, in the second book. <laughs> Man, that's wild stuff. Um, Recurie's uh, Horcrux. Yeah. <laughs> well, I uh, it's been a delight speaking to you both uh, today, both brilliant gentlemen. Um, Matthew Broussard, thank you for 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 coming on the show. If if there's uh, stuff you want to tell people about, I don't know if you're you're still doing shows. Uh, I assume you are. Where where can people see you? Oh yeah, um, follow me on Instagram. That's the best place. Monday Punday. Monday Punday. Instagram, and uh, come check out. Yeah, check out my calendar coming Great. around okay awesome if you're a science nerd uh three blue one brown just for your own satisfaction go watch videos by three blue one brown they do a, unbelievable math videos that the world needs to see more of so if you're looking for more uh fulfillment on at least a mathematical maybe scientific level check out videos by them big fan okay cool three blue one brown is that right yes nice okay, is that on cool. tiktok or on instagram or on both they're you they're more of a youtube page Okay. Nice. I'll have to check them out. That sounds fun. Uh, Phil, where can people find you? Go to TikTok. I'm on. I'm on TikTok pretty much exclusively. I put things on Instagram as well, but at ChemTeacherPhil. If you want to get nerdy, and learn a little bit about some chemistry and how it affects the world around you. That's kind of what we do on on uh, my content. I'm opening that right now. Yep. Get <laughs> in it. Uh, thank you both seriously for uh, for 
doing the show. It was a, a pleasure talking to you, and I'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.